welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you February 8th, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast. I'm joined today by Jason Colwick, and we'll be discussing filing your personal income taxes. So what we'll cover today is when to file, options you have when filing, the main forms involved in filing a return, common ways you can save on your taxes, and problems you could have if you intentionally evaded taxes or make accidental filing mistakes. So we know the subject of taxes can be a difficult one and can be painful for a lot of people and make you feel like you want to stab your eyes. But at some point, you do have to bite the bullet and just take your medicine and do what needs to be done because it'll be worth it in the long run. Absolutely. You talk about being worth it in the long run. If taxes sounds boring to you, does hundreds of thousands of dollars sound boring to you as well? The tax implications of your decisions on how to fill out your schedules and how to optimize your taxes has profound, profound, profound impact on your financial statement over your lifetime, potentially millions of dollars. So it makes absolute sense to study these things, however boring they may seem, and optimize accordingly. Yeah, that's definitely a good point. So let's start with when to file your taxes. It's common knowledge that April 15th is the filing deadline for most individuals with an option for a six-month extension. The federal deadline as of 2016 is April 15th with an option for a six-month extension. But just to discuss that off the bat, it's typically not advantageous to ever file an extension because you cannot defer the taxes that you have to pay through withholdings. So although you might think, I don't have to pay these taxes until six months from now, that's actually not the case. The only time it's ever appropriate to file an extension is in a true family emergency or disaster type situation. So most of the time, April 15th is the deadline, although most employers provide employees with W-2s and all of their income statements for the previous year around the end of January. So typically right around the end of January, all the way up until April 15th is the window in which you want to file your taxes. I'm of the opinion that the sooner the better, why not get it out of the way early and not worry about it. If your files are immaculate and you have all of your documents in order on your computer or in paper, it just becomes so much easier and less stressful to get it out of the way early. Yeah, you'll avoid a lot of stress if you don't wait until April 12th to be looking through your documents and then rushing around at the last minute to try to organize everything. Now, we've talked about when to file on the calendar, but when do you need to file depending on your income? Obviously, if you run a lemonade stand and let's say you make 5 or $10 that year, do you have to file a tax return? Does age matter? These questions have very simple answers that are in fact posted on the IRS website which is www.irs.gov, which is a fantastic resource for listeners to digest and peruse at their leisure for reference purposes. As of 2016, the criteria for filing taxes is typically if you are a private employee and you make over approximately $5,000, you're obligated to pay taxes. So that means if you work a seasonal job or a summer job, if you're in school, maybe you only make a couple thousand dollars, you're actually not obligated to file. I don't recall the exact number offhand. It's not important. You can look it up, but it's around that number. Another option is if you're a private individual and you run your own business and you obtain a 1099 income, which is what we'll discuss later on when we talk about the tax forms. But if you earn somewhere on the order of $600 or so of income through 1099s, you're also obligated to file. 
So in those two instances, you're obligated to file anything less. A kid with a lemonade stand is not obligated to file a tax return. It does not matter how old you are. If you're a 10-year-old prodigy entrepreneur, you are obligated to pay taxes. So then when it comes to actually filing, you have a couple of options. You could print them out, complete them yourself, and hand them into the IRS physically, or you can mail them in. Or what most people like to do nowadays is to go ahead and do it electronically and file it online. And then there's also some intermediaries who offer tax preparation services, discount tax preparers such as TurboTax. That's right. Although, Dallas, I'm of the opinion that those tax preparers and TurboTax is typically not the best option while filing your return for a couple of reasons. Number one is that nobody cares more about your personal financial situation than you do. So they won't spend the extra time optimizing and making sure that your taxes are completely squeaky clean as much as you might. And secondly, these preparers really mask all of the heavy lifting that's done when you're preparing your return. I find that it's better to find the actual forms from the IRS and fill them out digitally and then submit them online. Additionally, if you use a prepare, which you certainly may if you're early on and you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself, or you use a service such as TurboTax, you might have to pay a prepare fee, which you can easily avoid if you do your taxes yourself. So I'm of the opinion that it's almost always a good idea to do your taxes yourself, especially for average income earners, which applies to the majority. And then one last option you have is to go via premium tax preparers where you might be paying higher fees, but they're looking into legal situations and otherwise in case you have complicated business dealings or a lot of different real estate and things like that, which may not apply to the regular person. Now, how do you pay taxes to the IRS? How do you actually physically make the transaction? Well, the IRS tax is a pay-as-you-go tax defined by the IRS, which means if you're an employer, you pay that tax slowly over the year because the IRS figures we don't have enough self-discipline to pay all of that tax at once, so it's best if they automatically withhold it from your paycheck as the year rolls along. Now, what if you're self-employed? Obviously, they can't withhold your paychecks if you're self-employed. So what you have to do is you have to pay an estimated tax every quarter, which is similar to paying tax through withholdings. You just make your best guess if you're self-employed. And then at the end of the year, if you were a little high, they give you a refund. If you were a little low, you have to pay a little more taxes. So let's say April 15th rolls around and you withheld enough money to cover that tax number that you're going to come up with in that table. Then you're free and clear, you don't have to pay any more taxes, and if you overpaid, the IRS will issue you a refund, you just put your bank account number, or they'll mail you a check, and you get to deposit it, and the money is yours. However, if you undershot the number, and you didn't pay enough taxes during the year, you physically have to either mail the IRS a check, or hand them cash when you walk into their office, or route money electronically to the IRS to cover the difference. Now, this is an important concept, the tax refund. You see a lot of commercials on TV, you hear a lot of people say, oh, when my tax refund gets in, I can't wait because then I can go spend it on something. That's actually a large, large misconception. You never want to file your taxes such that you will have to obtain a refund from the IRS at the end of the year. This sounds completely contradictory. Why would you not want money? Well, the answer is quite simply this. 
When you receive a refund, you're essentially giving the government an interest-free loan on your money for the entire year, which is completely unnecessary because there's an opportunity cost associated with such money. It means you were paying too much in estimated tax along the way. Absolutely. So what this means is that you should never receive a tax refund. If you do, you are doing your withholdings incorrectly. Now there is a limit. You might ask, well, why don't I just withhold nothing or pay nothing and then pay a very, very large tax bill at the end of the year? Well, as I mentioned, the IRS is wise to this, and they once again figure people might not have the self-discipline to have a five or ten or $15,000 amount in their bank accounts come April 15th. So they actually set a limit on this, and that's about $1,000. Or if you paid as much tax as you did the last year, there's no limit. You can withhold as little as you want. There's a little formula. It's on the IRS website. So let's talk about some of the main forms associated with filing taxes. A lot of people are of the opinion that the tax code in the United States is very, very complicated. It's not easy to understand. But I actually don't know if I agree with that entirely. I think that there's a dozen or so important forms that you need to memorize, but once you get to be a little familiar with them, it's actually not that complicated. It's actually quite simple. Essentially what you're doing is you're adding up all of the income you made during the year, you're subtracting your deductions, and you're paying tax on the difference. Does that sound very complicated? Not really. So let's get started with the granddaddy form, the main form of all that everyone files their taxes with, and that's called the 1040 form. So what the 1040 form does, essentially does exactly what I just described. There's a section which tabulates all of your incomes. So if you work at a job, if you earn interest at a bank, if you have stocks, if you wrote a book back in the day and are still receiving royalties for it, if you're receiving alimony, if you're receiving rents, all these types of things are considered income that go to the bottom line to you at the end of the year. Then you're subtracting deductions which are essentially freebies or subsidies that the government allows to give us a little bit of a tax break. So that might be some health care costs, some travel costs, some educator expenses, some business expenses, etc. And then you're paying tax on the difference. So the big tables you need to know of are the tax tables, which may change from year to year, but they're traditionally about the same. You can look them up online on the IRS website. What you do is you look at your adjusted gross income, which is your total income minus deductions, and from there you find which tax bracket you fall into, and you simply pay tax on that amount. It's that simple. So let's get a little bit more specific. Let's talk about filing status. There are several statuses you may apply for when filing a tax return, and that's basically single, married, filing jointly or together, married, filing separately, head of the household, or a widow or widower. There's not really a big difference between any filing status in terms of tax breaks. After selecting your filing status, which is basically married or single, you select exemptions. The IRS allows you an exemption for yourself simply because you're a body, and if you have any children or dependents that depend on you for income, perhaps an elderly parent or an adopted child, something like that, you can actually claim them as dependents on your taxes and then deduct a certain amount of money typically about $3,500 per head, and simply deduct that at the end of the day for your taxes. So let's talk about income. For most people, it's going to be salaried employed income, which is reported on the W-2. That goes on the very top and will probably account for most people's income. Next, we've got taxable interest. 
if you have a bank account and you earn interest, or if you're lending money to a friend and he's paying you interest, that counts as taxable interest and you have to add it to your income. Next, we've got dividends. If you own stock and you get paid dividends every quarter or once a year, you actually have to pay taxes on that in the year in which you receive them. If you receive any business income from a side job or entrepreneurial venture, you also need to report this here. Capital gains, which we'll discuss when we discuss our Schedule Ds, need to go here. IRA distributions, any pensions or annuities you receive from a retirement account perhaps, any real estate rents or royalties you receive, farming income, unemployment income, social security benefits, and all the miscellaneous income you can think of. You basically need to add all up together. Next, we need to adjust this income which is essentially subtracting what the start of the deductions would be. So if you are a teacher and you buy school supplies for your kids, you can actually deduct that from your income. Health savings accounts and flexible spending accounts are deducted here. Penalties for withdrawal of early retirement, perhaps a 401k, is deducted here. Keep in mind, all of these deductions or adjustments to income is essentially the IRS's way of subsidizing expenses that you may have during the year. Student loan interest deduction, for example, is a very large one. If you're paying interest on a student loan, you can absolutely deduct that from your taxes, as well as tuition and fees if you are a student and you are earning money and having to pay taxes. Another adjustment to income that a lot of people don't realize is moving expenses. So if you pack up and move across the country, the limit is 50 miles according to the IRS you are allowed to deduct the full cost of those moving expenses on your taxes, which is quite nice. It's worthwhile when you have major events in your life to keep notes or at least keep track of costs and expenses along the way because they're usually considered tax events where there might be a special situation that applies for when you're filing. So now that we've talked about income, we've talked about adjustments to income, let's move on to taxes and credits, which is essentially the second to last part. So the big tax credit you get are your itemized or standard deduction. Now, what is a deduction? Well, it's similar to an exemption in which the IRS considers that all of the sales tax, all of the income tax, all of the real estate tax you may have paid during the year, it would be unfair for you not to be able to deduct that from your taxes because the government would essentially be double dipping if that were not the case. So what the IRS came up with was a concept called the standard deduction, which allows each individual to essentially lop off about six dollars or $7,000 from their tax bill at the end of the day. Now, if you choose to itemize your deductions, that means that you had more taxes, more health care costs, more gifts to charity, this is on the Schedule A, which we'll discuss very shortly, that are actually in excess of that six dollars or $7,000 number, so then it makes more sense to itemize your deductions. But these itemized or standard deductions is a very important concept to grasp when you're filling out your 1040. So again, it's just worth keeping track of things like charitable giving, healthcare costs, unforeseen accidents, things like that, because you can use those when filing your taxes. Exactly. So essentially after that, you're done. What you do is you come up with a final number, which is the taxable income you have. And based on that, you simply have to pay the tax on it. So that's it for the 1040. Add up your income, subtract your deductions and credits, and pay the tax. Let's talk about the schedules associated with this 1040, which are essentially add-ons to the 1040. If the 1040 is the planet, then the schedules are the moons.
After the 1040, you have various schedules which can apply to different situations that zoom in and give a little bit more detail on specific situations. So the big five are the schedule A, B, C, D, and E. And then in certain situations, you might have a few more. That's right. So we talked about itemizing deductions, and that's what the first schedule is, schedule A. So if you opted to take the standard deduction, then you actually don't have to file a Schedule A. You can skip it entirely. But if you're itemizing deductions, then you have to fill out a Schedule A. Now, what is covered in this? Well, this is where you put all of your medical and dental expenses for the year combined. So you can actually deduct medical and dental expenses from your income, which means if you break your arm and pay $1,000, you can deduct it from your taxes, provided it meets certain criteria. Now this criteria is typically that these healthcare expenses might exceed a certain percentage of your income. As of this year, it's 10%. So if you made $100,000, you actually have to spend more than $10,000 in healthcare costs to be able to start to deduct them. Next are taxes you paid. Now this is where the big number comes from in the estimate from the IRS on the standard deduction. Because throughout the year you're paying various taxes, sales tax, income tax, property tax, the IRS allows you to actually keep track of that on your own and tabulate it all and deduct every last penny of it. Additionally, if you paid any interest, now this is a big one for homeowners. This is home mortgage interest or any interest on any loans outstanding you have. You can actually deduct them from this on your Schedule A. Next, we've got casualty and theft losses. What a lot of people don't realize is that a tax event is actually applicable to a lot of events that people don't realize. For instance, if your home is robbed of all of its electronics, the value of those electronics is considered a casualty, and you can deduct the entire amount on your Schedule A, provided it might meet some of the same percentage criteria as the healthcare one. And finally, we've got gifts to charity and tithing. So if you're making donations or contributing to charity or your church throughout the year, total that up and put that there. So that about covers it for the Schedule A. That's itemized deductions. Moving on to the Schedule B. This is when you earn interest and dividends on typically stocks and loans, as we've discussed. So if you own stock in a company and they're paying you dividends throughout the year, this is where you would put it the amounts and the dates at which you received these dividends. For some people, it may not be applicable. If you're an investor and you're receiving dividends, it would be applicable for you. Next, we've got the Schedule C. This is profit and loss from business, which means if you have any side business or you are an entrepreneur or you make money on the side in any venture, this is where you would put all of the income you made and deduct all of the expenses as well. Now, this is perhaps one of the most significant tax deductions of all time, which are business expenses. The main benefit of owning a business is that you can deduct every single expense associated with running that business. That is one of the one things the U.S. government gets right with regards to taxes is allowing business owners to deduct all of the expenses. That means the computer that your employer has provided you, they write off on their taxes. Similarly, if you buy a computer for your business or your home-based business, you are entitled to deduct the entire amount of the purchase value. This is significant because you can actually deduct a lot of business expenses. This is where you want to account for all your cost of doing business from salaries, advertising, marketing, cost of goods, your lease, utilities, professional services, depreciation, things like this. 
So we discussed earlier, automobile and transportation deductions is a separate conversation in its own, but essentially the IRS allows 56 cents per mile driven to be deducted from a business expense if the transportation purpose was for business. As a result, the Schedule C will either have a profit or a loss when everything is added up at the end of the schedule. When attached to the main 1040, this is simply added as positive income or subtracted as negative income. Moving on, Schedule D is where you claim your capital gains and losses, where if you have assets, especially if you have stock investments, this is where you're claiming your profit and losses that you realize within the year. It'll differentiate between short-term investments and long-term investments. The IRS definition there is anything held less than a year is considered short-term and anything held longer than a year is considered long-term. You would prefer that it's classified as long-term because long-term will be taxed at a lower rate than ordinary income. And again, this includes anything from a lawnmower to a house, your stocks, assets in general. So moving on, the Schedule E. Now this is where you report rents and royalties that you receive. So what is a rent and what is a royalty? Well, a rent is anything that you earn from renting out equipment or capital or homes. Traditionally, this is thought of as real estate, but let's say you rent out a motorcycle to your friend and he pays you a monthly premium. That is considered rental income. So this is where you would report it here. Royalties are similar. Everyone has heard of music royalties and book royalties. If you produce a piece of intellectual property, not a piece of physical property, and you're receiving royalties as a result of future sales, those are considered royalties and would be reported here. So similar to the Schedule C in which you may deduct business expenses from business income, if you own a rental property and you have rental expenses associated with that rental property, you can deduct the entire amount, which means every time you drive to your rental property, you can deduct the cost of that transportation, which once again, if you're using the IRS definition is 56 cents for every mile, if you choose not to use that definition, you can add up all of your gas, add up your depreciation, add up your maintenance, and deduct it that way. Similar to the Schedule C, in which you can deduct business expenses from business income, you can deduct rental expenses from rental income, which means that all of your mortgage interest, all of your insurance premiums, all of your depreciation, all of your cleaning and maintenance fees, all of your transportation, advertising, realtor commissions, all of these things can be deducted if you own a rental house, for instance, and you can subtract that from the rental income you receive from the property. So we've covered the main tax forms. You know, there are a miscellaneous few more. For instance, a K-1 if you own a partnership, or a 1099 if you are a private contractor or if you pay a private contractor. All of these forms are easily available. Once again, irs.gov is a fantastic resource. All of the information and all of the forms you need are actually listed quite clearly on the website. So for any of these other forms or clarifications, irs.gov is just about the only website you need. So in summary, you take all of these schedules, you fill them out, attach them with your tax form, and then that provides the detail for the IRS to follow up if necessary or provide substantial evidence to support your claims. So now that we've probably bored you to tears, let's move on to some common ways to save within the tax system. We touched on withholding optimization earlier, and although it's common for people to want to get a tax refund when they're filing their taxes, it actually makes more sense for you to owe the government a little bit of money when completing your taxes, because that means they haven't withheld too much from you in the meantime. 
So if you found in the past where you've gotten a big refund multiple years in a row, you should file a new W-4 with the IRS and update your exemptions. So let's talk about ways to save by owning a home office. So if you're self-employed or even if you're not self-employed, it actually makes sense to set up a home office in the home because all of the expenses associated with that can be deducted either by square footage or by actual cost of the building. If it's a percentage of the building that you occupy, you can deduct the percent of the depreciation, etc. One additional benefit to the home office is that it allows you to qualify your home as your office, which means that if you're commuting from home to work and then you come back from work to home, you're actually not coming home, you're coming to your home office. So all of that mileage you spend, you can deduct whether you're able to qualify part of your home as a home office depends on whether the activity that you do in your home is a hobby or a business. And the way that's defined is whether it's profit-seeking. A hobby, you might be doing something that you enjoy, but you're not intending to make a profit from it, and you wouldn't be able to claim it as a home office. Whereas if you were intending to make a profit from your efforts, then it could qualify as a business, therefore a home office deduction. So transportation, as we mentioned, is an entire subject on its own, but there are ways to optimize transportation costs and purchasing vehicles, buying vehicles versus leasing vehicles that will optimize your transportation deduction. Just know that transportation, because it's such a significant portion of business and everyday expenses, can result in significant savings if optimized. Business meals and entertainment are 50% tax deductible, and that's coming from the basis of the IRS assuming that you're taking a client out and sharing the expenses, or as they say, going Dutch. Next, we come to income shifting and gifting, which is actually a very, very significant way to save that's often overlooked by a lot of people. A person with a very large income is going to be in a very high tax bracket. Now, a person with a low income is going to be in a very low tax bracket. So if you, for instance, have a child who is in a low tax bracket, it makes sense to shift some of the income off the top of your bracket down to the bracket of your child. So how is this possible? Well, one way is if you are self-employed, you can actually hire your children and pay them a certain amount, which essentially shifts the wages from yourself to your child such that the tax bracket is lower. Additionally, you can gift either your child or another individual up to approximately $15,000 a year tax-free up to a ceiling of about $5 million over a lifetime, which means if you're a family member and you're considering giving a gift, perhaps a down payment to a family member to help pay for a first house, you might want to consider the tax implications of the gift limit. And to quickly wrap it up, we'll just go over some problems you could have if you intentionally evade taxes or if you accidentally make filing mistakes. If you intentionally evade taxes, you could be in for a world of trouble because the IRS does not forgive. Absolutely, Dallas. My suggestion to everyone out there listening is don't ever lie on your taxes. You need to tell the truth. You need to be honest. As painful as it is to pay taxes on the money that you earn, you have to report it all ethically and morally and legally. But if you make ignorant mistakes where you're not intending to evade taxes, but you accidentally make mistakes, you don't have to worry. The IRS will work with you. You'll be able to pay whatever it is that you owe. And if you have any problems with that, in certain situations, they'll help you set up a payment plan to settle what you owe.
The IRS routinely audits individuals throughout the U.S. based on income to ensure that people are, in fact, paying their correct amount of taxes and to ensure that no one's cheating the system. The way they determine who to audit is based on random sampling of people, the primary factor being income. And so they will more commonly audit higher income individuals, but they will on occasion take a small sampling of lower income individuals as well. Now let's summarize. That's a lot of information to digest. It's a little cut and dry, but nonetheless important. So let's summarize what we've learned. Taxes is actually not that complicated once you get the hang of it. First thing you do is you add up all of your income from all sources. Next thing you do is you subtract all of your deductions. Next, you pay taxes on what you owe through withholdings or estimated tax if you're self-employed, and then that's the end of it. It's that simple. We've thrown a lot of information at you, so the important thing to remember is to empower yourself with information and not get bogged down by the exact specifics of how much is deductible in this year because it might change next year. So what you want to do is know where to look for information. Use the irs.gov website as a resource when filing your taxes. As we said, keep track of taxable events throughout the year. Be knowledgeable where you can. Know where to look up information and search out what you need to know. File your taxes early so that you're not rushing last minute. And be willing to educate yourself because it'll definitely pay off in the long run. They say death and taxes are the only things that are consistent throughout life. So if taxes are going to follow you every year, it's going to pay off knowing how to optimize filing. That pretty much sums up the information that we wanted to get across to you this time. So catch you next time on another edition of the Post Money Plan Podcast. Mm-hmm.